There's a possibility that if people start recycling that they might think, oh, I've done my bit and so I can do other things that are, not, that are maybe not so good. Hello, and welcome to Why Don't We Just, a podcast about the complex answers to simple questions. My name is Dale Vavasor, and this is the fourth and last episode of Why Don't We Just Ask People to Change. Whether it's reducing air travel or reducing your meat intake, we're exploring the hidden complexities that make behaviour change difficult. Last episode, we heard from Mark Wilson about social influence and authoritarian personalities, and today is going to be a bit different. You see, we're talking to... Vokia Abrahams, or Abrahamsu in Dutch. I'm a senior lecturer in environmental studies in the School of Geography, Environment and Earth Sciences at Victoria University of Wellington. For the last three episodes, we've looked at challenges of behavioural change in the abstract. I've provided examples to help understanding, but the intent was that the rules themselves were to be applicable into any situation you could think of. With what Vokia Abrahams does, this episode will centre entirely around the one context. So I am an environmental psychologist, and so I study human behaviour as it relates to environmental issues. So I look at things like climate science communication, public perception of climate change, things like environmental attitudes and how they relate to engagement in environmentally friendly behaviours. Yeah, so a whole range of things to do with people and the environment. Given the climate crisis currently ongoing, it seems fitting. Anyway, in this episode I talked to Abrahams about how to change behaviour, specifically in the context of encouraging pro-environmental action. We discussed this in three ways, in terms of her university course about the subject, in terms of a 2013 paper she co-wrote about the subject, and lastly, a book she published this year about the subject. Let's start with the university courses. That's where students who haven't engaged with this content before get introduced to it for the first time. It's a course that uh, is called Drivers of Human Behaviour, which has two components to it. It's really looking at understanding people's motivations or barriers to engaging in poor environmental behaviour and understanding essentially that different behaviours are related to different motivations. So changing car use is going to be different to changing people's meat consumption or reducing people's meat consumption. Um, And the second part of the course looks at uh, behaviour change. So how effective are behaviour change interventions to actually affect change and not so much change in the short term, but long-term changes as well. And so I guess if it, if it does have a selling point, because I guess it does, is that um, students work in teams and, and apply those two aspects I talked about in practice. So I work with Andrew Wilkes, who is the sustainability director and also with his team in the sustainability office. So he usually outlines a few key issues that the university is facing around, I mean, air travel is a big one, things like moving towards more plant-based diets. In this year, we're looking at um, the uptake of Mevo, which is an electric car share sort of scheme. And so the students apply that. So they work in teams and they apply knowledge about what motivates people and moving away from assumptions about what motivates people but actually looking at the literature, but also surveying people or interviewing people. And then they design a campaign to try and address the issue. Yeah, that sounds really cool. What sort of campaigns have students led in past years? 
So last year, uh, a group looked at uh, staff air travel. So they did a commitment uh, pledge campaign, where, uh, which was featured in Vic News and all around. There's still posters on this floor as we speak uh, where staff could commit to different levels of pledges. So they could either calculate their carbon footprint or they could actually pledge to not fly or only fly if, if it was necessary for their career. Um, so that was one example. Another example is the Tupperware Tuesday campaign. They looked at the effectiveness of, of this campaign so you can get a discount if you bring your own Tupperware. So already just with this brief window we get a few ideas of what sorts of campaigns can be effective. Public commitments and explicit incentives. Now Rather than ask Abrahams to rehash her entire course for me in an interview, we should get a better idea of the sort of influence methods that are the most successful by turning to her 2013 paper reviewing, well, a lot of them. So I had done some research myself on, on the use of social comparison and social norms, and so the idea is that our behaviour is often guided by what other people do or what we think that other people do, right? So this is referred to as social norms. Um, and so, I mean, one example, of course, in Wellington is, and I use this a lot in, in my classes, is jaywalking, right? So we sort of almost sometimes blindly follow the people in front of us without really, it's sort of a norm to do that. And so social influence has really taken off in, in the environmental psychology literature to sort of see, can we use social influence to affect behavior change? We covered social norms briefly in the last episode, with the example of a sign telling you what most other people in that situation did. The idea being, you see the sign and go, aha, most people do this, so it must be the right thing to do, or at least an okay thing to do. Turns out, there are a variety of methods for conveying whether something is a, quote, normal thing to do. Some of these methods work better than others. Um, And so the meta-analysis myself and Linda Stech did was really to try and quantify the effect um, because study one might look at one intervention and with a different sample another you know it's a way to kind of quantify if you have all these different studies that have all looked at the same sort of thing social influence in slightly different ways can we try and look at it more systematically. What Volker Abrahams is discussing here is a type of research methodology known as a meta-analysis. Now I can't explain the nuts and bolts of how it works, but the general idea is to take a bunch of studies that are looking at the same thing, for example, ways to influence people, and are also measuring it in comparable ways, for example, how much was this person influenced. Then, you take the results from all those studies, run them through some equations, and out pops a bunch of statistics telling you which methods of social influence were consistently more reliable than others, and which were consistently more effective than others. First, let's hear from Abrahams about what some of those methods are, and then which were better, if any. So there's different kinds of social influence interventions that you could use. Some studies found that if you if you tell people that your neighbours are saving energy or recycling, that this also encourages you to do the same thing. So that's sort of often quite anonymous in the sense that you get like a letter from your energy company to say you use more or less than the average, for example. And so that's sort of on one end of the spectrum. And then on the other hand, we had uh, what's known as block leaders or like environmental champions who are really probably quite well embedded in their social network. And these are people who try and convey the message that it's important to recycle or do something for the environment. And so So on one hand, you have an impersonal letter directly comparing you against an invisible norm. And on the other hand, 
you have someone in your own friend group that you value their opinion on these matters and so can directly convey their opinions to you. So I guess what we found was that these more involved interventions where people were actually involved in their social network and actively promoting pro-environmental behavior that that had a higher effect size. So that was in those terms, more effective intervention compared to say a social norm intervention. So some things work better than others. And of course, the flip side of that is that if you have social norms and you use energy bills or some sort of information campaign to talk about social norms, it's much cheaper to implement than say having people be environmental champions. It's a much more involved kind of intervention, you know, more difficult to scale up, if you will, so. Sounds simple, right? You have to choose one. Either you reach a lot of people, sort of effectively, or you reach a few people quite effectively. However, to be responsibly cautious, there is the caveat that we probably don't know about all of the studies that have been done because some of them may not have been published. One of the issues we did have is that which is a general issue, I guess, is that studies that do not find significant differences between groups that is a study that is less likely to be published. So this is known as publication bias. So we can say with some degree of certainty that this, you know, th- these are the effect sizes we found, but it is also important to be cautious about, about some of these conclusions. In other words, you generally don't hear about the research showing an ineffective intervention. It's unlikely, but entirely possible, if every study Volker Abrahams looked at showing an effective intervention, there were 10 unpublished studies showing it wasn't. We need to be cautious of this, but not too pessimistic or else we may never move forward. Speaking of moving forward, before we do just that onto Abrahams' recent book, she mentioned one important way that campaigns like these, whether large and impersonal or small and intimate, can backfire. So in psychology, there's this notion of moral licensing, which um, has been kind of studied, whereby if people do one good thing, that then gives them the license to do something not so good. An example of that is, is, is for example, I mean, everybody sort of associates environmental behavior with recycling. And so if you've, there's a possibility that if people start recycling, that they might think, oh, I've done my bit. And so I can do other things that are not, that are maybe not so good. So in your own life and others' lives, be careful that when you do something good, you don't celebrate this by doing something counterproductive. I've certainly been guilty of this in my own life. For example, walking to work instead of driving and rewarding myself by taking the lift. But if we want to go truly in depth into these concepts, we should turn to Abrahams' recent book, published in 2019 and titled Encouraging Pro-Environmental Behaviour, what works, what doesn't, and why. It's 184 pages of educational content and costs $157, Jesus Christ. Anyway, I respect the work Abrahams has done, but hopefully by listening to this podcast where I talk to her about the book, you can avoid spending $157. So I look at energy consumption, uh, food choices, and transport choices, and look at what do we know about what motivates people, what might prevent people from doing these behaviors, and what do we know from the literature about how, you know, what is effective in terms of of changing behavior. We really need to focus on the the high impact behaviors, and that's what I've also tried to focus on. So there's no chapter on recycling in it, for example. I mean, partly because there's so much research on it already, I kind of didn't want to reinvent the wheel. Or um, So I think 
part of it is also about looking at, at high-impact behaviors, such as moving towards plant-based diets, reducing car use, those sorts of things, which in part require perhaps some raising of awareness because people might be very willing to do something for the environment, but they just don't know where to start. A key theme of this podcast is the steps after just raising awareness. So a question I try to ask is to most people is just, why can't I just ask people to be better? Um, because there's a lot of things in people's lives that affect their behaviours. I mean, it's, there's issues around uh, awareness, but there's also issues around what people feel they can actually do, given that there's all these other things in their lives going on around, you know, making ends meet or putting food on the table or, or you know, in terms of kind of day-to-day decision-making, the environment might not necessarily come to the forefront. So people will, and I think a lot of people will probably say that, you know, the environment is really important, but in your day-to-day life, how does that translate into action? Yeah, and so there's also a debate around how much does individual behavior really matter? I mean, I often kind of hear this from people who say, oh, you know, we should have just better technology, which is fair enough. I take that point that we, we probably do need better technology, but there's still people will still need to accept the technology people will still need to use the technology efficiently or in the way that is that it is intended it's the same with policies we can say oh we just need carbon taxes we just need pricing carbon for example sure but people also this will affect people on different incomes in different ways it will mean that the public will need to somehow accept you know because policymakers might not be willing to implement policies if they're not acceptable to the public so i think the human dimensions of of these sorts of environmental issues are kind of go beyond kind of individual behavior but needs to be looked at in a, in a broader perspective and so your question like why can't people just be better I think is I mean it sort of puts a judgment as well and say that apparently we're doing things wrong but it's also we live in a society that promotes economic growth and capitalism and so there is also an, a sense in which the individual is embedded within society within capitalism with so it's I think individual behavior and attitudes and actions are really really important but it's only part of the picture and also only part of the solution yeah so it's less a case that people are malicious about the environment or that they just don't care but more that they have a lot of other things going on that are a lot more immediately relevant. Mm. I mean, and you can also turn that around and say, well, actually, a lot of things that you could do that help reduce greenhouse gas emissions also have other benefits, right? So cycling to work instead of driving when it's feasible, because I know that it's not always feasible if you live very far away from where you work, but it has health benefits, for example. Moving towards a plant-based diet has various health benefits and animal welfare benefits. And so it's also obviously not just about climate change or reducing emissions but it has other other benefits as well so while we can influence people by being a really good friend telling them that everyone is doing the good thing or that doing the good thing can have other benefits we need to be aware of two things one people are busy people are stressed people are poor sometimes the right thing to do isn't available isn't practical or isn't a priority for people, especially when their immediate concern is surviving. 2. Individual change can only do so much, especially in terms of the environment. I personally take the view that these pro-environmental behaviours like walking or eating less meat are useful in terms of preparing ourselves for the future in which they become our only option, more so than they are useful for shifting our global environmental impact. For that, 
we likely need large-scale change of either the technological or legislative variety. But even in that context of preparing ourselves, it's still useful to change individual behaviour. And while sometimes the better behaviour may not be available to people, sometimes it is, and we can give them a nudge. So looking at this individual behaviour we can nudge people towards, what specifically can we do? Uh, it all depends on the behavior, really. And so what I always tell my students is we need to first understand what motivates people. So if somebody takes really long showers, it's, well, why is that the case, right? And it could be something easy like setting a timer in your shower so that you know, because often people just don't really realize how long they spend in the shower or in terms of meat consumption, for example, it might be to do with taste or because of, I mean, other reasons. I mean, different behaviors are related to different motivations. So to change one behavior would would require some sort of understanding of why people do what they do in order to then change it. And in some cases, it could be reminders or better signage in terms of, I mean, recycling seems like a very easy thing to do, but I sometimes, I'm still on campus and like with the recycling bins and I think, oh, what goes in what bin? So it could be better signage or, I don't know, imagery or something like that. Whereas other behaviors like car use or energy consumption at home require different kinds of interventions. So yeah, it's, there's no kind of straightforward answer is maybe also not the answer you're looking for but it it all depends on on the behavior and also on the people to some extent. It's disappointing that there isn't a silver bullet but the lack of one is also what we spent the last four episodes discussing. So let's focus on one behavior, one potentially high impact behavior that definitely a decent number of people could be moving towards but aren't. Now what can we do? I think often the behaviors with high impacts are not small behaviors, but they're also big, they require big changes. So, I mean, air travel is one, especially being in New Zealand is very difficult to, to change, right? So I fly to conferences and I try and try and limit the amount of travel I do, but it's a, it's a tricky thing. So it's a big, a big thing to kind of give up. Going plant-based is also a big, in the lists of the 10 things you can do to save the environment, I think eating plant-based diets is always in there. But it's difficult to do, right? So so I'm not sure if there's small things with big impacts, but perhaps small things can lead to bigger impacts, right? So you can start with something easy and then think, oh, actually, I could also do this. So start with a meatless Monday and then think maybe I can... Again, it comes with support, right? So there's if there are more options available to you to do the environmentally friendly thing, then that also makes it easier for people as opposed to just figuring it out by yourself and not having having more options or having an electric vehicle car share, for example, if, if that's made available, then that's an easier option for people. Yeah, I've definitely seen motivational posters, sort of things mm. going around talking about how we don't need a small number of people to make big changes in their life. We need lots of people to make small changes. But ultimately needing bigger, like I think, I mean, I talked earlier that we are embedded in kind of a system that promotes economic growth. And I think Greta Thunberg talked about this very eloquently also at the UN um, summit is that we need to overhaul the entire system in a way, and, and which sounds very big, but you know, we are embedded in this system of economic growth, which is not sustainable. I think like if you're looking at it from a behavior change point of view, we, a lot of the studies that have been done by myself and also by others, we've looked at intervention A and then found, oh, it's effective or it's not effective. But often it's about doing a combination of things, right? So it's 
having a meat-free Monday in the halls of residence, but also having, say, the university endorse this and having cheaper vegetarian options in the supermarket. It's a concerted effort, I think, that individuals play a part in. But I think if it's embedded in a system that supports that, it will be most beneficial, I think, in terms of changing behavior. Plus, then it will spill, you know, and then other people will also take it on. And then you have other people start to also engage in environmentally friendly behaviors. So it becomes a social norm, I guess, to live an environmentally friendly lifestyle. So to sum everything up, encouraging individual change is necessary to save our planet, but it isn't sufficient. Faulkner Abrahams didn't say this, but I would say we need to overthrow our entire economic order. But that's a big thing to do. And the question we have been answering is not, why don't we just abolish capitalism? Rather, we have been focusing on individual effects. And what we've learned today is that the closer you are to someone, the easier it is to convince them that the pro-environmental behaviour is also the normal thing to do. Furthermore, you're better able to assess why they aren't doing it in the first place and address that. Unless you can't address it because it's, again, a systemic issue like poverty. Regardless, that's the end of this episode. Hopefully neither of us have been overwhelmed by the scope of some of the changes that need to occur, and are able to take our own practical steps. So, thank you for listening. And of all of our guests, Vokia Abrahams was the only one who I hadn't known already, so I thank her greatly for responding to my email and giving me her time. Additional thanks go to the Centre for Science and Society for supporting my work and, again, all of you. The intro music is called The Drama, the outro Dreams of Vain, both are by Raphael Crux, and I'll see you again. I believe you've recently written and published a book. Mm-hmm. That's, that's quite cool, just to be honest. Never again. <laughs> <laughs> was it not a fun experience? Oh, it was a, it was a fun experience, but it took a lot longer than I thought. Yes, let's put it that way. <laughs>